Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront as fierce fighting rages across Ukraine. We hear about the situation in the north as our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, calls in live from Kharkiv. And we discuss a fascinating interview with a newly mobilised Russian soldier conducted by our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. It's the first of its kind to appear in the Western press. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 5th of October. Day 224. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefront. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been another very, very busy day across the, the front, particularly in the northeast and the south. A lot of gains made by by Ukrainian forces. So let's start um, start in the north. There, the, after the retreat from Liman earlier in the week, Russian forces have fallen back, yet to find a, a line to coalesce around and form um, for any any kind of defence. Um, delighted that Roland's joining us today, so he he's up in that area. He'll he'll um, have more of an idea, hopefully. Um, but it looks as if they they've fallen quite far back from the from the Oskil River. So today's British Defence Intelligence uh, message on Twitter said that the Ukraine had taken, quote, substantial uh, area of, of territory east of the Oskol River and said that the U- Ukraine had advanced to 20 kilometres east. And of course, it's not a it's not a direct line there. It's where the where the ground lends itself, how far Ukraine want to push their forces before they risk becoming overextended and vulnerable and how far back Russia wants to withdraw before they can form some kind of uh, coherent new line but 20 kilometers east of the Oscar River is a is a is a hell of a chunk I mean that's a big old a big old push there and and likely still moving so the UK defense intelligence go on to say it is quote highly likely unquote the Ukraine can hit the um, uh, Savatovay 
Cremina Road, that would, that major resupply road running uh, through that area into into the east of the country, into the northeast of the country. Um, and if Ukraine are able to bring down accurate fire on there, that will, I mean, severely hamper Russia's ability to hold on to Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, the big cities in that area. And I mean, all this is starting is getting closer to and starting to nibble into the Luhansk Oblast, which obviously, I mean, not that the referendum last week makes any uh, any difference at all, but it, it, in terms of reality. But what it does do is it impacts the politics in in Moscow. If all they've done since Putin had his fantastic rock concert is is retreat um, or advance in the other direction, as they might put it, um, then yeah, it's not going to play well. So so in the northeast, still very very fluid. And um, and not going not going well for Russia. Then down in the south around Hezon, that uh, that push down the Dnipro River seems to have had um, again a, a, a huge element of success there. Uh, depending where the, where we think the line is drawn from the from the list of villages that we are seeing images of being liberated, as in they have Ukrainian flags flying over them and a lot of social media, but also President Zelensky in his address last night, his nightly nightly address last night, he, he listed a whole load of villages, which when, when you plot them on the map, gives a, a broad thrust down to the the west uh, west bank of the uh, of the Dnipro River. Russia has, has said it issued a, quote, regrouping order. Uh, fine, OK, you re- regroup as much as you like, but it means they're going backwards. Now, all this is going to put pressure on those remaining troops in that area of Hezon pro- uh, province, Hezon Oblast, north and west of the Dnipro River, and pressure on the city itself. That battle is yet to come, and, and whether or not Ukraine try and go into the city and, and, and fight an urban battle, that I mean, that is a conversation for another day, because that will be very, very hard fighting indeed. But uh, the, the push, as we've seen, the, the sort of slower... More considered shaping of the of the of the battle in the south in the Hezon region that does seem to have have, have suddenly fractured. Well, I say I say suddenly. I mean they've been pushing for weeks now, but in the last couple of days that that fracture down the river and Ukraine has pushed a push the thrust thrust down there um, quite where the the Russians will fall back to in this regrouping order. Uh, we we don't know. And again, their options for getting over the river back to the the comparative safety of the southern side of of the Dnipro River um, is uh, is very limited because the the bridges and the dam there are are largely out of action to military traffic. So quite what will happen to the to the Russian troops there, um, we have to wait and see. I mean, very in, in many ways similar tactics in the north and the south, albeit done at, at different speeds, different you know, the tempo of advance, but the tactic seems to be. To avoid areas of, of great strength, to bypass them, cut them off, which then gives the the Russian soldiers that are trapped the option to either stand and fight, or to try and siege it out, or to run, break and run, and try and try and escape. Um, none of those uh, particularly good for a, from a defender's point of view, especially the the last one, trying to you know, running, escaping, and sort of breaking and running back for your own lines is um, is very very dangerous. It's it's exceptionally hard to cover your flanks. When you are doing that, it can very quickly, as I think we've seen, descend into a route um, where you you are just harried by, by in this case the Ukrainians, and you you are you offer no resistance whatsoever, and very little security for your own for your own movement. So it just turn, turns into a you know, a mad dash to to save uh, to save your own life. So 
if that's what they're doing, and it would make sense because Ukraine is still smaller in terms of mass, if they are avoiding the points of great strength from Russia's point of view, strength here being numbers rather than quality, um, then that is a sensible a sensible tactic. Uh, of course, something has to, has eventually to happen. Those those soldiers that, that you that you surround have to capitulate or you kill the lot or, or or what have you. So, I mean, that's not just the end of it. Just bypassing is not a is not a, an end in and of itself, but it is a very, very helpful tactic if you're if you're outnumbered and if momentum and initiative is on your side. A um, couple of other updates, but I'll take a little pause there. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dom. Roland, you're on the ground in Ukraine. Can you tell us where are you and uh, what have you been writing about? What have you been seeing? Um, I'm sitting in Kharkiv, which is the delightful city. I've been here about a week. Um, I mean, we've been we've we've been around, um, you know, bits of bits of liberated areas. Um, we have had more cruise missile strikes, you know, the the other night um, on Kharkiv, um, and we're just kind of trying to absorb the. Um, I don't know the, the the sense of of what's going on because weirdly enough, I'm right here and I can go and talk to people, but but often I have to speak to soldiers kind of secondhand who've come back from the front. Um, because although you know you, you can get access to recently liberated areas, um, being at the cutting edge, the tip of the spear um, is is incredibly difficult. Um, and the, as we've noted before, the Ukrainians have um, pretty good operational security um, from that point of view. So you kind of have to, you know, speak to senior officers, have coffees with people, um, pick up a sense, a mood from the air. Um, and the sense is very much as, as as Dom has described. Um, they seem to be still moving. I mean, I had a had a couple of beers with a, a the soldier in a special forces unit um, who came back from the fighting east of the Oskil um, a few days ago, um, and he he said his impression was that they're still running. They don't. I said, well, they were meant to set up a um, a defensive line right along the Oskil. He said, well, as far as I could make out they didn't or they didn't try or, or they were unable to um and he was talking about you know setting up a a tank ambush that um didn't work out for one reason or another but but you know a russian tank they saw was going the other way like the the general kind of movement was very much eastwards um with the with the russians retreating and and, and ukrainians on the march and that that very much seems to be um the tempo and Roland, you said you've been around some of the liberated areas. What's your impression of them? Again, what, what are you seeing there? So a liberated area is um, almost always, in one way, to a, to a varying degree, completely devastated. Um, completely devastated, mildly devastated, half devastated. Um, depending on how long it's been in a frontline area, depending on how much fighting there was there when the Russians came in. And, and often the Russians had to battle for, for weeks and months. Um, to, to get hold of places. So, I mean, Izum was, um, it was a month-long battle. It was a battle that lasted, I think, pretty much the whole of March for the Russians to take that. Um, so, you know, al- already incredibly devastated by the time the, the Ukrainians push in very rapidly. Um, that means broken uh, basic infrastructure of life, you know, um, water, electricity, gas disappears, um, mobile phone signal disappears, life becomes incredibly difficult um so visually and and physically it's, it's an extremely strange kind of landscape and place to be um and and the people who you meet are generally and there's no far, hard and fast rule but generally um the people who end up remaining are the most vulnerable so if you go into a liberated village town wherever you're likely to meet very old people 
and very poor people. Um, and, you know, people who were vulnerable for other reasons, people who didn't have the ability uh, or the money or or the nous um, to leave for safety. Um, there are a handful of other people who, who would have remained, um, and, and especially people who kind of, you often meet. So I was in a village, um, spent a lot of time uh, this past couple of weeks in this place called Kazanchalopan up in the, right on the Russian border, um, just just north of Kharkiv. And up there you had, you, you had people trying to get by. So you had, um, it was taken by the Russians quite early in the war, very early, immediately in the war, the, the, the first night, um, basically. And they quickly installed a, um, a collaborative administration and then people living there had to make a decision, those who hadn't fled already, do I try and get out? Do I stay? Do I go to Russia? Because that was, you know, away from the front line. Um, and to what degree do I kind of make my peace with these people? Um, so you had, you have this pattern of people making compromises, kind of compromises you or I would, would really not want to make in their lives, but kind of, okay, to what degree do I get on with my life if I'm a municipal worker? Do I still go to work? If I don't go to work, will the town run properly? Um, if I do, am I collaborating? Um, and, you know, things like that. Um, and, and so people come in. The, the place up there, I wrote a piece on the weekend about how the mayor had fled, his mother had stayed, and he he led his band of guys in, liberated the village, saw his mum, very, very happy. But the, the story she told was one of, you know, a lot of compromises. Some people too afraid to speak to her because she was the mayor's son. Some people have fled because they were collaborate. They were definitely collaborating with the Russians. Um, so a lot of, a lot of kind of soul searching and and the beginnings of this process of getting to grips um, with with what happened, um, which is going to be a long and painful process, I think, for everyone involved. Thanks, Roland. Um, just two questions from me. In, in these recently liberated areas, do you get much of a sense of state aid from Ukraine? Do you see sort of trucks of food or other supplies coming through? And, and also something we, we talked about a lot yesterday was the weather and how the weather really can start to change and affect um, fighting conditions. And I just wanted to ask, what, what's it like in the east now? Do you, has, has autumn started over there? Well, on state aid, yeah, you see, it, it, it's a mixture. I mean, Ukraine is a, is a country with an incredible... Um, what's the word? <laughs> Third sector and um, civil society. That's the word we always talk about. Um, and it's just, just an incredible civil society, which, which first kind of emerged on the Maidan and then the 2014 war. And by the time this war came along, um, there was a huge network of volunteers who came together and a, a, a large proportion of the heavy lifting that you might expect to be done by the state is still done by volunteers. Um, so people bringing in um, humanitarian supplies, um, money, help, volunteering to kind of help ferry around elderly people who need to get hospital or back from hospital, things like that. So you have the you have you have the army, then you have local officialdom. Um, you know the the Kharkiv Oblast or, or or the district or borough um, authorities kind of reestablish control and, and set up um, the gas the get a generator going so the mobile phone mast is working even if it's you know. Um, going on and off um, and you and you do have efforts to get people emergency aid so up in Kazachalopan the other week um, they'd started handing out just emergency money right? like a, a, a one-off cash handout of, I can't remember how much, was it 1200 
grivna, maybe twelve thousand grivna. Um, don't don't quote me on the figure, but um, the idea was just look, let's get some money into people's hands because there's nothing here. The shops are gone, um, everything's gone. Um, so yeah, a real a real kind of mix of um, of contributions, but definitely definitely more involvement of the state than there would have been eight years ago. Um, oh, and the, the weather, the weather. Yes, look, it's autumn and, and it's kind of, sometimes you wake up and it's incredibly foggy. Um, sometimes like now it's clear, but we've had really serious heavy rain um, over the past few days on and off. Every other day there's a rainstorm. Um, the mud out there, in fact, the soldier I was talking to the other day um, said, you know, it, it's already pretty bad. You know, jeeps are skidding around all over the place and um, uh, the, the Rasputitsa is here, I think. Well, thank you very much, Roland. Uh, Dom, Francis, and Natalia, you've been listening to all this. Do you have any questions for Roland? I have one, actually, based on what we were talking about yesterday. Um, I just wanted to ask, just briefly, which Roland, ha- how are you able to, when you're so near the front line, what is the, your broadband provider? Is it Starlink or is it um, a Ukrainian provider? I'm just genuinely interested. I'm using an ordinary Ukrainian SIM card. Um, and that works fine until you get into places where all of the kind of networks have been blown to bits. Um, and then, then I suppose I could turn on the sat phone. Um, but generally one, you know, that, that, that seems like overkill, um, at that point. Thanks, Roland. Uh, Natalia, did you have a question? Sure. Just a quick one. Um, um, I mean, I think Roland has touched upon it, but I, I still was wondering, is there a feeling that those areas, because this is what I've heard from um, several Ukrainian officials who are saying we are liberating the land, but a lot of people have fled. Is there a feeling that um, those villages and small towns, they are um, completely, completely depopulated and that there are just not that many people left and it's going to be a long time before they come back? I mean, they're absolutely depopulated. It's um, it's like a ghost town. I mean, you know, Kazachalopan had about, I think it's meant to have had, you know, just over 5,000 people before the war. They think there's about 2,000 people left. Um, that might be exaggerating it. Um, a lot of people fled during the fighting. Either they fled to Ukrainian territory or they fled to Russian territory. Um, and then... Um, you know, the blunt truth is a, a proportion of people fled with the Russians when the Russians came in. Um, and, you know, a, a proportion of people collaborated and were, were fearful of, of Ukrainian control returning. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that that village at least has people because it was kind of in the rear, right? It was never completely safe because, the, 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 you know, the distance between the front line and the Russian border was so narrow there. But on the, on the you know, the villages on the road up, I mean, they're flattened. You know, you, 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 maybe there's one or two people kind of clean on in a, in a bullet ridden house or something, but, um, no, massively depopulated. Um, and it's, it, it's going to remain that way for some time. And, uh, Sergei Gaidai, the governor of Luhansk region, um, who this morning, this morning, a few hours ago, who's announced that the liberation of Luhansk has begun. So from him, we're assuming that Russian, Ukrainian troops, sorry, have crossed back into, uh, Luhansk region and are advancing eastwards. Um, he said, I think it was yesterday, put out a message saying, look, we're, we're shortly going to urge all residents of towns in Luhansk to leave wherever they can go um, because it's going to be a big battle to liberate them. And then he said, when we've liberated them, we're not going to let anyone back in because it's going to be impossible to 
to start the heating season. Um, and as, as Natasha knows very well, you know, in, in the former Soviet Union, cities are generally reliant on uh, kind of centralized heating that will, you know, a, a power station or heat water, <coughs> excuse me, that's provided to an entire city block or an entire district. Um, so you kind of rely on the municipal authorities for that. He was saying, you know, there is going to be no way we're going to be able to restore the basic necessities um, of life this winter. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know how long it will take to repopulate. Um, and, and I suspect, you know, it is going to be a big, it's going to be a steep hill to climb in terms of reconstruction after the war is over. And, and, and yes, I don't know what happens to, to repopulation. You know, will, will they remain empty or, or relatively empty for some years to come? I don't know. Hi, Roland. Dom here. Can I uh, jump in just for a moment? Great to great to hear you well, mate. Um, I was in Poland yesterday with uh, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, nipped over there. He was doing some stuff with his opposite number about ground-based air defence and some future Navy contract stuff. My eyes sort of glazed over that bit. But anyway, I was chatting to his staff he was in um he was in kiev last week and i um the second time he's been there the first time he was in i think um may but quite early on in the war and i was asking his staff what how the mood in president zelensky's bunker and the the team around him uh, had had changed in that time and they basically characterized it as, uh, as saying that the when they went out there earlier in the war there was a there was almost and these are my words not theirs but the, but they sort of characterised a, a grim determination to keep going to the end whatever that end might be um, and yet last week they they suggested it was almost grim determination to carry on to the end that would be their victory so so by no means suggesting that that this was near the end still a lot of hard fighting a lot of destruction a lot of people still to to be killed unfortunately um but they felt that and they weren't they weren't cheerleading for this is going to be over soon over by christmas over you know early in the spring but they that they felt that momentum was on their side and and it was coming their coming their way um albeit after a lot of hard fighting and i just wonder if you if you and on your various visits to the country have felt a similar shift amongst the population I think absolutely. Um, I mean, when it it was such a roller coaster. I mean, you know, in, in the weeks before, in, in the build up to the invasion, nobody could believe it was going to happen. There were so few people anywhere in Ukraine, you know, from 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 the elite and the government and and people on committees in Parliament down to anybody you met, like maybe maybe like one in ten or one in a hundred would say, yeah, I think I think we're going to have an invasion or a war or something. No one bought it, and then it happened, and everybody was in. Um, in complete shock and very frightened, um, and straight away that deter- that grim determination kicked in. You know, they they were going to sell their lives dearly, um, which which anybody who knew Ukraine, you know, knew that was going to play out. Which you know, a long story. We've talked about it before. Is one of the reasons that nobody who knew the place thought that Vladimir Putin would do it because they wouldn't. You know, it'd be a bloody fight. Um, and then I think, to be absolutely honest with you amongst kind of ordinary Ukrainians who weren't out there fighting from different places I've talked to, were honestly kind of pleasantly surprised about what happened at Kiev. Like, you know, after three days, and we're still standing, people were like, oh, goodness me. Um, you know, not that they had time to think about it necessarily. No one had time to think at that point. But, um, you know, this, and then, and then you know, the, that, that justifies your determination. It reinforces it. Um, and... And the grit, it, it's difficult to describe, right? But, but 
I think I think as you as you said, this kind of grim determination to fight to the end, no matter what. And and there were very grim months. You know, there was they got through the Battle of Kiev. The Ukrainians went. It all seemed good. And then, you know, Mariupol fell, which was a, a terrible blow. And the Donbass offensive was was horrible. I mean, it was just it was just grim. They they were losing ground day after day after day. The casualties were mounting. They had to, I think, basically kind of take steps to brush over the the true number of casualties. I, I don't know how many people died, but it, it was absolutely horrible. And being there was horrible. And the sense of I don't know where this is going to go, but but nonetheless, um, nobody losing that faith, that basic kind of belief that in the end we're going to win somehow. And now. I mean, absolutely. They feel the wind at their backs. And, and there's a couple of things I'd like to point out on that mood, um, on the kind of official mood. One is yesterday. Was it yesterday, day before? Zelensky signed this um, this decree saying, uh, you know, making it illegal for Ukraine to negotiate with Vladimir Putin or negotiate with Russia, but not under this leader, um, which I think was it was partly theater in a response to Vladimir Putin kind of annexing these areas and saying, ha um, it's now illegal for any Russian leader to to, to give up these areas. Um but it, but but, so a couple of days ago, I was having a chat with with um, Mikhailo Podolyak, um, one of Zelensky's aides. And I was talking about you know how this ends and stuff, and he was talking about regime change in Russia, basically, and, and he was basically talking about how um, this is going to crack Russian society. It's going to crack the Russian elite, um, and and his 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 take was, look, um, the headbangers. The you know the Igor Gherkins of this world, the um, the Patrushevs, the people who really believe in dying for Tsar and orthodoxy and the greater Russian Empire and the Russian world, are actually a real minority, and they they're artificially dominant in the bubble in which Putin lives. But most Russians, really, okay, they're bombarded with it. Okay, they've gone along with it. They don't really have a stake in that. And the more disasters Russia faces on the battlefield, the more mobilized people die. When eventually, the, the, the point he picked out was, look, when they lose Donetsk or Luhansk, the cities which were taken in 2014, there is really going to be a domestic crisis in Russia. Um, and I think the Ukrainian elite now really feel or have, have a kind of hope that, you know, not only are they going to win this war and push the Russians out, um, it is going to be the end of Putin. Um, and you can see that in the kind of things they're saying at the moment. Well, thank you very much for that, Roland. Natalia, you've been talking to Russians who've been mobilised. Can you tell us what they told you? Yes, sure. Um, obviously, we're now in the second week of mobilisation in Russia. Um, soon we will be in the third week. Um, and again, this is something that came as a shock for um, the majority of Russians. Um, a lot of people obviously were shocked and outraged when the uh, when Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine. But up until now, uh, the majority of Russians were not affected by the war in an immediate way. Um, so what happened two years, uh, two weeks ago, sorry, is that men, men from all walks of life are uh, getting um, called up. And I managed to speak to a man who was called up just last week. And we spoke the day before he went off for training. And it's, I mean, it's quite, it was quite a fascinating conversation where he um, revealed a very curious mix of ideas and convictions, which are um, quite contradictory. And it was very difficult to get my hand around. But it just shows you how... Um, 
how fragmented Russian society is. And just like Roland was saying, that the um, this super conservative alternationist minority that you know dominates the headline and that's very um, that's very visible in the West as well. It, it is by no means representative of what's going on in Russia. Um, this man that we called Anatoly for this uh, story because we uh, went to try and prote- protect his identity. Uh, he goes. He's going to the to the war willingly, which is quite interesting. Um, whereas he's opposed to the idea of the war, and he understands how futile it is. Um, again, a, quite a contradictory picture, but I'm I'm going to try and um, explain in a bit of detail. Um, we know that he could have avoided the draft. He's a car mechanic. Um, he was actually recommended to me by someone who's his client, who told me that. Anatoly, as we call him, uh, is a great professional. Everyone loves him. Everyone loves his little um, car repair shop. And apparently on the eve of his call, the call up, um, he got a call from a client, a doctor, who was looking to get her winter tires on. You know, it's it's getting cold in, in Siberia now where they're from. And Anatoly told her that he was getting called up, that, you know, he will have to um, cancel all the appointments. And the doctor essentially offered... Uh, to cook him up a fake diagnosis so that he wouldn't have to go to war. Um, and Anatoly turned it down. Um, I, throughout our conversation, which lasted for about an hour, I tried to get him to explain to me why he was going to the war. Um, he kept saying that it's not his choice. He doesn't feel that um, he was the one who started the war or he was asked about whether the Russians wanted to go to the war. But as someone who served six years ago, he felt that it was his duty to go there and support Russian soldiers and someone maybe um, who served with him. Some of his childhood friends were there. At the same time, he was very clear-eyed about uh, what's actually going on in Ukraine. He quoted some of his childhood friends saying that um, back in Ukraine, um, Russians are viewed as occupiers. He's uh, clear-eyed about the fact that... Um, Russian soldiers are somewhere where they don't belong. Um, he even spoke about, you know, acts of sabotage and how Russian soldiers feel threatened in Ukraine, saying that, you know, if foreign troops were on Russian soil, we will treat them the same way. So he could he could totally understand. Uh, he was also very critical about the recent annexation, saying that um, uh, this is going to be a burden on Russia's shoulders in so many ways. Um, that, you know, there's so many problems in Russia that, that, that needs, need to be addressed that, you know, those resources um, are better off elsewhere. At the same time, um, he, you know, he, he was very clear about the mess, as he called it, that uh, the Kremlin got Russians into. Um, and he said that he felt that he was a hostage of, as he put it, that's his words, he felt that he was a hostage of that situation. And that uh, somehow he thought that by going to the war, um, the war was going to end quicker. Again, this is this is what he believes. Um, this is not quite as rational as, as you might expect, but this is what someone who's actually going there thinks. And we spoke uh, last week, we spoke on uh, Thursday evening, uh, he's in Novosibirsk, which is in Siberia, which is Russia's third largest city. And next morning, he uh, went off to the um, to a military base just outside town, 
um, uh, which took in reportedly several thousand Russian recruits from all over the region and from other Siberians, Siberian regions. And I haven't spoken to him since. He hasn't um, replied to my messages. He told me before he was going that, you know, he wanted to have a chat and um, he didn't feel like there was anything else to explain. But it's quite interesting because that's the place where uh, he's getting his tra- training. Uh, it received quite a lot of media attention and several uh, governors visited that place to respond to criticism and, and concern about conditions. And they did um, show that... Um, some of the that the uh, this training complex is completely overflowing with new recruits. That there are military tents pitched just in the forest, and it's it's getting cold. So it just shows how um, makeshift all of those efforts, you know, to shore up Russia's losses in Ukraine are, and that you know how 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 badly prepared Russian military is for you know to take in such a large number of of new recruits. And Natalia. Can I ask just just two things? One, do, do you think, or I mean, you may, might not be able to answer this, and that's fair enough. But do you think his views and how he was thinking about the war might be representative in some way? Is, is to what extent is he sort of on his own in his thinking, or, or maybe that's reflected in, in in his friends and his his comrades? And also, did you get a sense from him of what he thinks his his future will be? He's quite young, so I think um, he's representative in the way that. Unlike an older generation, um, he doesn't consume news solely from state TV, but also from uh, from various online sources. That's why I think his views are more of a hodgepodge uh, mix, uh, mismatch of what you can hear both on TV and on social media. On the one hand, he's very clear-eyed about what's happening in Europe. Ukraine. He told me about having watched videos of Russian uh, prisoners of war uh, taken captive in Ukraine who spoke about how senseless this war is. At the same time, he did seem to... Uh, I mean, there were some cliches that I heard uh, from him that definitely come from state TV, you know, when you know, now and again he would use the word Nazi. Uh, and then you, when actually start, start talking to him, you can see that he he doesn't quite understand what this word means and he's... Um, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't really believe that they are Nazis. There, when you start speaking to him, he. I mean, he told me, for example, you know, if they keep showing those men with Nazi tattoos on Russian TV. You know, people who allegedly came out of the of the Mariupol steelworks, and then he would say, you know, there are so many people with Nazi tattoos in Russia. Like, what's what's up with that? Like, should we just go and invade another country? So it's a quite. Um, I think he's. Um, He's typical in a way that you can still see that even people who don't rely on state TV for the information, what state TV has been disseminating, um, those, I wouldn't describe them, I wouldn't call them close-held beliefs, but some of the preconceptions, misconceptions, they're still there, and I think it's going to take a long time to eradicate them. Hi, Natalia. Dom here. Lovely to speak to you again. Um, the, the chap you're speaking to, Anatoly, I think he speaks of uh, a duty by the sound of it. And I just wonder if, if you got a feel for whether he felt a loyalty to Russia or Putin or, or whether he felt that that was the same thing, as we, we've discussed many times, that, that, that Putin sees himself as the embodiment of Russia. So I wonder if, if, if Anatoly 
did. And, and secondly, if I may, and please tell me to show off if, if this is too uh, too close to the bone. Did did he was he critical of you at all as a as a uh, yeah, Russian uh, outside the country working for the for the evil Western Telegraph Press? You know, did, was was he critical of you and your choices at all? Mm. Great questions, Dom. I'm going to start with the second one because it's easier to pick up. He was not critical at all. Uh, he knew that I was abroad, um, and like we, we talked a little bit about security because he, um, you know, he wasn't sure how safe it was to speak to me. Um, uh, no, nope, he had no problem with me um, working for a Western media outlet at all. Um, uh, great question about loyalty to Putin or Russia. Um, as many people that I know and I spoke of who are supportive of the war somewhat and who are supporting the Russian army in Ukraine. Uh, he's scathing about Putin's policies back home. Um, he's very critical about um, um, about the way the Putin regime has been distributing revenues through the years. He's very clear-eyed about the fact that regions like Siberia have been underfunded and neglected all those years, and that a lot of men um, have been uh, pushed. I mean, maybe it's not the best way to put it, but a lot of men were put in a position of extreme poverty that they chose going to war as a way to solve their financial problems. So for him, uh, he well, first off, I have to say that he didn't uh, uh, mention Putin by name. I think it was a deliberate... Uh, tactic and and likewise he didn't use the word war which is a criminal offense in Russia these days but he was very clear that he was not going to fight for Putin or any of the hundred um, you know well dressed officials who were was applauding him when they were next annexing parts of Ukraine he just said that you know he was going there for for his guys who he knew who he thinks um, uh, he knew what they were going through you know someone who served for a year someone who um, ended up serving as a sniper, he, he thought that, you know, he wanted to be um, with his boys. At the same time, he was very clear-eyed about what's happening. He was very clear that it was an, an invasion. So that's, that's quite, quite a contradictory mix of belief. Um, beliefs, very, you know, quite, quite fascinating, I found. Well, thank you, Natalia. Thank you, Dom, for the question. Roland and Francis, have you got any questions for Natalia or should we move on to other updates? Can I have one quickly? Natasha, um, was he was he clear about the dangers? I mean, was he scared? And, and the other thing is, like, mm. did he I mean, did he think Russia was going to win this? You said he, he, he thought he kind of had this idea that if he went there, the war would be finished mm. sooner. Um, but it doesn't sound like he's that optimistic about that. Mm, thanks for this, Ron. Um, uh, he insisted that he wasn't scared. He told me, um, quote, if I was scared, I wouldn't be going there. Um, again, um, it's not easy for me to say whether he was genuine or not. Uh, he struck me as one of those, um, as we say, like typical Russian macho guys. And uh, maybe he wouldn't feel comfortable sharing, you know, those feelings with me, a woman. Um, in terms of where the war going... Where, where the war was going, uh, he said he. Um, it was obvious to him that the uh, the tide of the war is not going in Russia's favor. He said, you know, if people like me or even someone with no military experience are being called up, that means that things are really bad at the front. Um, he mostly spoke about staying in the Donbas, staying in Eastern Ukraine. 
and basically defending the positions that, that were there, uh, he said that at that time it doesn't look that it's possible or um, advisable or if it's a good idea at all to go somewhere beyond what Russia c- can control. I even asked him about uh, potential hostilities on the Russian territory because what we've been hearing on state TV in recent weeks, um, especially when the mobilization was called up, and I think Putin did mention about it, about the fact that there is a fear that if we don't send in more men to fight, hostilities will um, um, spread over to um, to the Russian territory. Um, Anatoly said that he didn't think that it was in the cars, that, you know, Russia would, would be attacked uh, anytime soon. But he just, you know, he was he sounded like a man without a... Um, a long-term plan or thinking. He, he sounded like someone who could think about, who could think a month ahead, you know, if, if he was like, you know, just like Vladimir Putin, that, you know, we're not talking about annexing those lands for good or, um, I don't know, securing those um, areas for centuries. It's about being there and, and, and trying to ward off the Ukrainian counteroffensive. That, that, that's how he sounded. Hi, Natalia. Just a very brief one from me, if that's all right. I'm just very struck by what you were saying about the sources of information that he receives as a, as a fairly young guy, that he is not purely seeing the state propaganda on television, but he's also having other sources. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what those sources are, those other sources. I mean, if we imagine what his phone might look like, for instance, what apps has he got? What's, uh, what browsers does he look at? What, or perhaps he still consumes newspapers. I'm just genuinely interested in, in what these other sources might be. Sure. From from what he told me, my impression uh, was that that. He was a typical working class working class guy from um, a big city uh, that uh, would not read papers, would not uh, watch evening news as a habit, but he would be exposed to uh, TV propaganda because you know the TV is on everywhere. You're in the waiting room of a hospital. Maybe he's in the waiting room of his car service shop. Um, so he's exposed to that. Uh, it looks like the rest of the news that he, he um, that he's getting he is getting from uh, Telegram and various channels on, on Telegram, which I think, as many of our listeners have discovered, is a medium of source of sort uh, in um, in many former Soviet countries, including Russia and Ukraine. And so it can be quite a hodgepodge. Uh, it could be Telegram channels. Um, that are rapidly patriotic, uh, which are also now being very open about Russia's losses in, in southern Ukraine. And it could be Ukrainian channels, for example, that publish uh, photos and videos of captured Ukrainian prisoners of war. This is something that he mentioned that, you know, he's trying to stay abreast of what's going on. And when the first Russians were captured in Ukraine, he was very curious and he like he did look uh, uh, he did went. He did go and look for videos of those uh, prisoners of war and what they were telling, um, you know, about their experience. Well, thank you very much, uh, Natalia Vasilieva, for for that. And if you've been listening to this and do want to read Natalia's interview, just go to the Telegraph website and you'll you'll find it there. Um, can we move on, Francis? You've been looking into uh, some of the energy updates um, over the past twenty four hours. Would you take us through them? 
Thanks, David. Yes, yesterday I offered a, an update on the energy front. And there's been, as you say, some interesting machinations uh, in the past day or so. So we now understand that EU ambassadors have reached an agreement on new sanctions to hit Putin's war, um, including a price cap on Russian oil sales. That's according to European diplomats. Now, this, of course, is significant for the reasons that I spoke about yesterday. This will have uh, big ramifications on the enormous jumps in the cost of oil price um, due to the reduced uh, amounts of it floating around um, Europe ever since Russia turned off the taps and that that is still being purchased because of those leaps in price. Uh, has uh, has meant that Russia is still able to, despite it selling less, still able to make enormous profits. And this is an attempt to counteract that. I think the, the broader significance of it, though, because this comes as no real surprise, is that this is now the eighth round of sanctions against Moscow. So we have seen a consistent holding of the line within the European Union, which is something that was questioned uh, when the war began. And of course, um, in, in, in more recent months, as we've seen shifts in terms of, of elections, perhaps more slightly Eurosceptic leaders coming in in certain countries. But thus far, the line is holding on continuing sanctions against Russia on this matter. Will it hold as winter hits? That's a different question. But nonetheless, I think that is significant and worthy of comment. The other thing that's worth talking about on the energy front is that we've spoken at length in the past about Zaporizhia, and it appears that Ukraine is considering restarting Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Um, That's according to the president of the company that operates the plant. Now, of course, it was shut down Uh, The last of the six reactors, I think it was in September, because of Russian attacks on the site. But they want to restart it as a reaction to winter approaching and the fears, of course, of what what that means by Ukraine's own vital energy supply. So I will read a quote here from uh, the office of the boss of the plant. He says, if you have a low temperature, you will just freeze everything inside the safety equipment must be damaged. We must return it to activity. So an interesting um, statement there. Just whilst we're on the subject of, of Zaporizhia, I would point listeners to an interesting piece uh, yesterday in The Telegraph by Hamish de Breton Gordon, who, of course, is a regular on this podcast himself. And he talks a little bit more about his argument around the dangers around Zaporizhia and nuclear power plants generally. And uh, he talks about what he seems as the likelihood of as things continue to go south on the military side from uh, Russia's perspective, he believes that there will be an increased likelihood of um, some kind of attack on hazardous infrastructure, of which, of course, Zaporizhia would be a central component. And, uh, of course, the consequences of that would be very significant. He says that um, this would, of course, freeze the war, as we've spoken about on the podcast previously, and in so doing would offer Putin a vital off-ramp um, it, if there was some sort of radiation leak. And uh, Putin could, ex- could, could dangle peace on, on terms uh, if there was some kind of crisis, um, a radiation leak, and uh, thereby if Ukraine will sort to continue the war in those situations, there may be um, an appearance um, that they were the uh, aggressors. And he just makes the point that this is something the West needs to be very sensitive to. And as a consequence of that, me absolutely clear to Vladimir Putin that the use of any 
nuclear, chemical or biological weapons is a red line issue. He feels that is not being spoken about enough because of the way in which this would offer Putin a vital off ramp. So and I quote at the end of the article, he says there must be no ambiguity to use these weapons will lead to Putin's very speedy demise. And he talks about the need of that to be an urgent priority amongst the West. So that's the situation on the energy front in the last 24 hours. And as I say, I would point listeners to an interesting piece of analysis on Zaporizhia more broadly by, by Hamish. Thank you very much uh, for that, Francis. Uh, Dom, I know you had some thoughts about the latest package of US military support. Would you take us through your thoughts there? And then I think just because there's so many of us, we'd better start uh, summing up some of our final thoughts. Sure. Well, just very quickly then, just, um, well, news more than thoughts. Uh, yesterday, another US aid package, $625 million aid for for Ukraine, including four HIMARS, which takes it up to 20, we think, uh, now in and committed to, in or committed to Ukraine. Now, there are another 18 that you will hear talked about that those 18 are coming from the Ukrainian Security Assistance Initiative, which is a, a, another American initiative, much longer term. Uh, this will take years. I mean, these are as if they were bu- buying them off the off the shelf, as it were. So, so build them, they'll buy them. So this is a much longer term program to equip Ukraine after the war. So those 18, you'll you'll hear as part of the USAI, the, the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, they are separate from the 20 that have now been committed to, to the theatre itself right now. Also, there were 32 uh, heavy artillery, artillery barrels, I think all of 155, uh, possibly not, but I think they were all 155 calibre, 75,000 artillery rounds and 200 MRAPs, so mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles. This is a family of vehicles that, as the name suggests, mine-resistant and ambush-protected. So for the, the kind of things that we saw up in the, the, the Kharkiv dash, the Mad Max dash a couple of weeks ago, this, uh, this very, very fast wheeled vehicles, um, so so less good off-road, not not um, not totally out of the game, but uh, much better on, on roads and tracks. Uh, but but with, with the um, the emphasis on the the mobility there for the, uh, for those vehicles, so speed rather than protection and firepower. So that was the USA package. Just to note, um, conscious of the time, I'm just rolling on with. So my my final thought would be: have a look or keep an eye on on the southern front around uh, Hezon because subtly different for the um, from the north. The the Russian army is the same. This Russian army that we know is fragile, uh, brittle in many ways, and hollow. But it's poorly trained, poorly equipped, poorly led. Um, has no moral core, and all of that is just exacerbates the morale issue. So the same same Russian army, very very different geography. So in the south, or oh, sorry, take a step back. In the north, round round Kharkiv, the Kharkiv front, which actually I think we should start calling the Luhansk front because it's getting that that far over. Kharkiv is, is right in the rearview mirror. But so on this front, on the Luhansk front, how far do Ukraine go, and how far does Russia fall? Does Russia fall back? That is largely defined by geography and a Ukrainian decision not to become overextended. Down south in the Hezon front, that does not necessarily apply because they're working on interior lines, i.e. Their, their supply lines, Ukrainian supply lines, are somewhat better protected. They are, they are closer to their, to their supply depots and their sort of rear areas. But also, in terms of geography, it's very neatly defined by the Dnipro River, and rather helpfully for the last few weeks, Ukraine have been dropping the bridges and denying the bridge and the dam to military traffic from Russia. So, so a largely contained geographic area. And therefore, if it's the same army, same Russian army that they're going up against, and I suggest it is, the decision when to stop 
is again, I think, in Ukraine's uh, in Ukraine's gift, but they are not limited by having to worry about overextending themselves and their their resupply lines. So, could they go as far as uh, Hezon City? Possibly, they could. They they might be able to take the whole of that north and the west bank of the um, of the Dnipro River up to the city of Kherson. So, I think that is important. To, to note anyway that I think it's the same Russian army, but diff- very different geographic areas, which will which will, will we will see some very interesting uh, indicators from from Ukraine about how that plays out. But more importantly than that, and I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit here, so let's maybe come back to this in a couple of weeks' time. I think what happens to the city of Kherson is going to be a rehearsal for Mariupol, and what I mean by that is Kherson's very important. It, it's the it's the uh, first major capital, the only major, the only. Uh, regional capital to fall, first big city, very big city to fall to Russia in this. So huge symbolic value, in many ways similar to Mariupol. But assaulting it and for Ukraine to retake it will be will be very bloody indeed. Nasty, gritty, urban fighting on a on a scale they've they've not committed to so far in this um in this war. And I think we will see the the symbology or how, how important symbology is. For Hezon to fall, uh, in, in Putin's eyes this is, so retaken by Ukraine, would be a massive blow for him. Likewise, Mariupol, and not only that, but if Ukraine were to take Mariupol and then cleave the Russian forces into two, then they really are up the Dnipro without a paddle because you know that, that then threatens Crimea. So I think what we're about to see is Ukraine's view of, of serious urban combat. And I think that will be... That will be played out as and when they get to the city of Hezon. Probably got a bit of, a bit ahead of myself there. One to pick up in a couple of weeks' time. But um, for now, very different geography down south, and it will raise some very, very interesting questions. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Roland or Natalia, would you like to go next? I mean, since I spoke about um, uh, mobilised men um, this afternoon, I think this is also something to look out for. We're seeing different reports about how mobilised men are going to be used, how, when, where... There are first reports that someone who was drafted just a week or two ago uh, uh, have already been shipped off to Ukraine. We know that someone, that there's at least there's one person who was already taken, taken captive in Ukraine. Um, and again, the, the, mobilize, the mobilized man is something that um, uh, the Russian army is relying on as their last ditch attempt to, you know, shore up the losses that, that it has been suffering all, all those months. Um, on TV um, yesterday afternoon when even state TV reporters were, were, were trying to sound um, quite sober about what was going on. And um, there was this one state TV reporter who said that he's aware of um, hundreds and thousands of men have been mobilized, but he's also... Um, um, he also knew that um, those people would not be sent into the, to the battle right now. And if there is anything that they can do to reverse the course of this war, it's not going to happen tom- tomorrow or um, in a couple of months' time. So um, really, I would see what's happening at those training centers. We've seen reports of violence. We've seen reports of suicide. So it doesn't look like a happy place. Um, I'm not suggesting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mutiny on, on a nationwide scale, but I think this is something uh, to look out for and to see um, what kind of a state those men would be going in Ukraine. Are they willing? Are they going there willingly? What do, what do they think about the war? Or they're like completely fed up and they will just raise their arms and surrender at the first opportunity. I just have one final thought, if I may, David, which relates to 
Liz Truss's speech at party conference, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, of course. She has just finished delivering it at the time of recording. And it was quite striking. Most of what she was speaking about was on the domestic agenda. But she did touch on Ukraine. And she said that the UK will support Kyiv however long it takes. That's a direct quote. And that she believes Ukraine will win. Now, it was really striking watching this and seeing the scenes in the hall. It was met with a standing ovation and quite a considerable one with a lot of very emotional faces, not only from members of parliament and the cabinet, but also the delegates that were present, the party members. And I think if that is indeed indicative of the mood in the government and in the Conservative Party, which I believe it is, then I think that we can certainly see that under Liz Truss, as we have long predicted on this podcast, that her stance on Ukraine, however difficult this winter gets, will remain absolutely firm and solid, as much so as uh, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And just as my addition to that... I was very struck by a poll that's been published about morale in the EU amongst the ordinary populations with regard to the Ukraine war. There seems to be a real willingness to accept that the support that is being offered to Ukraine uh, by by the European Union and also numerous governments continues and continues unabated. Uh, there's strong support for the net there for the need to become more independent in terms of energy supply. Almost three quarters, so 72% of Europeans are in favour of the EU becoming independent of those supplies completely, even if it means rising costs. Support is highest in Poland at 80% and in Italy at 76%, perhaps slightly surprising that one, given um, the scepticism on the point of energy seen by some very prominent uh, Italian uh, politicians. The lowest, fascinatingly, is in Germany. Only 69% believe that, which, as I say, I think is quite remarkable. This was a survey of of 12,000 citizens that are conducted every three months. And I think it will be very interesting monitoring this uh, in the months ahead as winter hits. But if indeed it is indicative of a spirit of solidarity amongst the European populations, even when things get difficult, then I think that is a huge success story for Ukraine and is yet another example of the immense significance of the counteroffensive prior to winter, because it has totally changed the way that, that I think the war is seen by many in Europe. And as a consequence of that, to, to Roland's point, I think many people see an outright victory as now not only a possibility, but the most likely outcome at present. And they want to support that. So a very interesting thing that we will, of course, return to in due course. Well, thank you, Tom, Francis, Natalia. Roland Oliphant, would you like the very final words? Um, I think both of these points are really important. I think the, the morale of the mobilised men and how they're being thrown in. I mean, it's... Western analysts were saying, oh, it's going to take, you know, months to prepare them. But it, it seems like, well, only if you actually equip them and actually train them. If you don't bother equipping and training, you can send them straight in straight away. Um, but I think I think the, the one hope that the Russians have at this point is that they can replicate kind of what the Ukrainians did. The Ukrainians mobilized as soon as the war started. And now you've got newly trained brigades at the front um, and it's transformed into battlefield success. If they can actually train these guys, if they can actually, you know, take the time to put them through two months of preparation and proper equipment, 
then when those units were to get to the front, they might have a chance of of stabilizing the battlefield. But until then, um, this is this is why I'm very interested in what's going on in in Kherson and in Kharkiv at the moment, because okay, like the Russian Ministry of Defense and, and some of the kind of unofficial but pro-Russian propaganda channels would like us to believe that this retreat in Kherson is it's a regrouping they realized they were going to be encircled it's not very pleasant but it's a it's a retreat in good order and we're going to have a new defensive line um to stop losing um Novikarkova. and as dom has rightly said you know what if it turns into a route i'm not it's not clear to me yet if it is a retreat in good order or a route or one that will turn into a route and if it does turn into a route that's the third disaster that's the third russian military disaster it would be um in the space of space of a month and i just feel like there's only so many of those a military can absorb before it is curtains um, and its end game. Um, so both of those things really, really have to be noticed. And the other thing I, I, I would note, you know, on, on state television correspondents, Alexander Kotz, who's a, who's a prominent kind of pro-war, jingoistic war journalist, was uh, just put on his telegram just this afternoon um, that the Ukrainians are going for, for this road um, for this place called Sviatova in, in Luhansk region. Um, and he says openly, look, the main problem is we don't have enough men to hold this kind of front. Um, so I don't know if if the Russians can hold on to this. And I, I do wonder if we're, we're beginning to look at, a, you know, a, some kind of general collapse. I, I don't see I'm beginning to 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 think, you know, the end is nigh. Um, I'm sure I'm ahead of myself. I'm sure it, it won't it won't be so quick. But um, that's that's my thought. And then sorry to keep on. And then the really big question is what Mr. Podolyak was saying to me the other week. What's going to happen in Russia and, and, and what is going to happen to, uh, to Vladimir Putin's regime? I- Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world ukraine the latest is produced by louisa wells and giles gear and today on twitter claire hubble acast powers the world's best podcasts Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like... Wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, but you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so 
much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>